thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Your family, your community, your country, your responsibility. Be the best citizen you can be. Click on the Leader Say banner on this website to find out about your rights and responsibility. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. Chris, lovely to chat to you. Good morning. Hi. Hello, Reedy. Hi there. I saw your tweet about Jon Snow and I thought, I know Jon Snow and I worked with him briefly at the G8 Summit in Glen Eagles at, uh, at, for, at Channel 4. But that's not the Jon Snow we're talking about because the one that we're talking about was born 200 years ago today. Yes, the one on uh, telly at the moment and the journalist you're referring to is an elder statesman of news this person is an elder statesman of science yes it is 200 years ago today since john snow the forefather of the science of epidemiology was born he was a york man he was born in the city of york and he then moved to london where he was a gp general practitioner but one of the things he did which caused enormous acclaim and which is why we're talking about him today was to look at the association between outbreaks of cholera and water and he was able to show very convincingly that there was some kind of link between people drinking dirty water and then going down with cholera Mm. and he did a series of lovely experiments and wrote these experiments up unfortunately they didn't really make a huge difference to public health and people didn't take them terribly seriously at the time. And something of a myth uh, was invented by an American epidemiologist in the 1930s making Jon Snow this amazing person who discovered cholera. He said Jon Snow didn't discover cholera, but he did do some incredibly elegant epidemiology and was one of the first people to start showing how uh, there is an association between a dirty environment and people getting unwell although he didn't know what that association was at the time Mm. but it was amazing work that he did and of course now we found all of our um, population level medicine on work like he did showing associations between what people eat what they drink where they go who they hang out with and what what happens to their health so it is an important day today because that was really the time when someone who kick-started this whole idea of epidemiology was just getting started. Mm-hmm. Now, Chris, I can't remember whether we spoke about this or not, but I know that authorities in both the US and Great Britain have been concerned about a potentially catastrophic threat to public health. That is the spike in uh, drug-resistant uh, superbugs. And here in South Africa, we're also concerned as well. Please talk to me about the relationship between um, drug-resistant bacteria or these superbugs and antibiotics. Do antibiotics uh, feed the scourge, as it were? That's right. So what uh, Dame Sally Sally Davies, who's the uh, government's chief medical officer, announced last week was that she was very concerned, fearing that within the next 20 years or so, there would be very few antimicrobial agents left that could wipe out the full spectrum of bacteria. Mm. 
because if you look at the rate at which bacteria are becoming resistant to drugs and you look at the rate at which pharmaceutical companies are inventing new drugs then the bacteria are winning unfortunately and this is because when you feed a person antibiotics to wipe out the infections they're carrying the antimicrobials kill bacteria but they don't necessarily kill all the bacteria because some bacteria naturally by chance happen to have in the same way that some humans happen to have genetic changes that can make them resistant or capable of growing despite the presence of this what would otherwise be a poisonous substance those bacteria can leave the body and share the genetic know-how for that resistance with other bacteria in the environment and in other people so people can transmit those bacteria to others or the other thing that can happen is those bacteria can go into the environment and they may not be a threat for a person but they can give the genetic knowledge of how to be a threat to a more dangerous organism which a person can then pick up and so slowly the more you use antimicrobial agents the more resistance we're going to see and within just a few years of the in invention of the drug flucloxacillin or its relative methicillin in the 1970s we already saw MRSA appear so MRSA is not a new threat but it has taken many many years four decades to spread right across the world and why we're worried as well is that the population now is so mobile if you look at how people travel around the world there at any one moment in time is something like 800,000 people airborne around earth on an airplane and that means that it's very easy to travel from A to B and when people go from A to B one side of the world to the other they are taking whatever bugs they're carrying and that in can include any superbugs they may be harboring from one place to another and then share them with the environment in those new places so we're very mobile now we have cars and boats and buses and planes and trains and uh, people are uh, on average better off so they tend to travel more and there are more of us so the opportunities for bugs to be spread around is much greater so this mm. is a real threat and we need to incentivize pharmaceutical companies to come up with new strategies we also need to make sure that doctors and members of the public understand what antibiotics can and can't do so that we limit their use to when it's absolutely critical to slow down the rate at which this uh, microbial resistance occurs. Our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. We're taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Here's a, a, an SMS here. It says, uh, Chris, please describe what actually happens when you get infected with uh, with a flu virus or cold, I suppose. Those are two different things. I started with a slight scratchy part in my throat. Can you stop the virus from settling in and multiplying and spreading? then why does it move further to throat, lungs, head and sinuses? A very good question, and I uh, hope you're feeling better, whoever sent that one in. The answer is that uh, viruses are very tiny organisms, so they're about 100 nanometers, or in, that's the case of the flu, about one ten-thousandth of a millimetre across. And that's so small that they're literally just an infectious bag of genes. And the virus has no ability to make new viruses itself it needs to infect or hijack a cell to do that so when someone who has the flu coughs or sneezes particles come out of them they go into the air and you breathe them in and the first place they're probably going to land and hit is the back of your throat and when they hit the back of your throat the virus uses these sticky molecules called receptors which are a bit like the viral equivalent of velcro really to dock with cells and the cells are fooled into thinking rather like a Trojan horse, that there's something juicy sitting on their surface that they need to pull inside themselves. So the cells 
bring the virus inside the cell and the virus knows when it's been internalized within the cell because of chemical changes that it can detect and this leads to the virus uncoating it unwraps itself and the genetic information inside the virus comes out and it then in the case of the flu goes into the nucleus of the cell where the genetic material is in some viruses it stays just out in the outer part of the cell and it then begins to copy itself and it completely hijacks the cell turning off all of the cells normal processes or almost all of the cells normal processes and press ganging all of the cells machinery into doing nothing but making more viruses and the viruses are reassembled inside the cell into new particles they then bud off out of the cell and they either get blown away when you cough or sneeze to go and infect someone else or as the person who asked this question points out they start to spread because wherever the infection starts usually in the back of the throat is the initial point where you think mm, something's up there but then they go onto adjacent tissue and they'll spread radially across the tissue they're in and also as you cough and splutter you're carrying the infection elsewhere in your airways so the infection spreads but at the same time the immune system's alarm bells go off and various immune system factors come in and various immune signals are produced and these put cells into a very antivirus state and that antivirus state slows down the spread but it does make you feel unwell it makes you go oh i don't feel very very well i've got aches and pains and tiredness and so part of the symptoms are because the virus is damaging tissue part of the symptoms are because the immune system is fighting off the virus and then after a few days the immune system has got a good enough response to suppress the virus and after about a week it's completely gone but you're left feeling a little bit washed out meanwhile someone else has picked it up and it's their problem all right, our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567, Stay on the line. We'll be back right after this. Lots of questions coming through for the Naked Scientist, and we're taking them all. 021-446-0567, Busani in Bramfantine. Good morning, Busani. Good morning, really. Yes. Um, I just have a quick question for the Naked Scientist. That, um, if heat makes things expand, why do fabrics shrink when washed in hot water? Because maybe we eat too much, eh? And then our fabrics <laughs> Yes, Chris? <laughs> I've got another really neat experiment you can try, actually, which will fool your friends at parties as long as they're not listening to this <laughs> radio program. Take an elastic band and dangle something on it so it's a little bit stretched. Okay. And then take your hairdryer and blow the hot air at the elastic band. You might think, or the obvious thing to think, is that as the elastic band warms up in the stream of air from the hairdryer the weight will sink because the band will get longer. Uh-huh. Actually, the band will get shorter. And maybe someone listening can speculate as to why they think that happens. I'm not making it up. It really will shorten. It will shrink temporarily while it's hot. And then when you take the heat off, it will go back to the length it was before. Oh. So have a think about that, everyone. And I'll try to explain before the end of the program why that happens. Now, returning to Bassani's question about why do things shrink in the wash... When you put things in the wash, some materials do not like high temperatures very much. And what happens when you give a material energy, rather like the elastic band I was just talking about, the material is made of long fibres, usually polymers, which are molecules shaped a bit like spaghetti, and they're all tangled up. And when you give them energy in the wash, they vibrate around and move more vigorously. And instead of being in the shape that they started off in, when they vibrate around, they can slip past each other and adopt a new shape, 
and then they can form new associations or linkages between different parts of the molecule. So instead of the two ends of the molecule being linked up, making a long polymer, they might sort of loop together where the two ends join end to end and you get a sort of loop out of the middle. And that, of course, makes the overall length shorter. So those new associations can form because the temperature is high and the molecules are vibrating around sufficient to allow them to reconfigure themselves in that way. Some things do this more than others, which is why you'll find some materials are more likely to shrink in the wash than others. Very interesting indeed. Thank you very much, Busani. Let's go to, is it Gulam in Cape Town? Yes, it is. Good morning, Lady. Good, Good morning, morning uh, to the naked scientists mm. as well. Um, just a question. You know, you always read about old uh, shipwrecks being found and old bodies and, and bones and stuff, and they always say they can work out the age by, by using carbon dating. Can you please explain to me how carbon dating works? Yes, hello, Gulam. The way this works, it was discovered by Willard Libby, uh, who I think he got the Nobel Prize for this, actually. Mm. But up in the high atmosphere, the outer reaches of the Earth's atmosphere are being bombarded by solar radiation. And this gives rise from, I think, nitrogen to a species of carbon, an isotope, called carbon-14. And carbon-14, unlike carbon-12, which is the normal form of common form of carbon you'll find on Earth when you look in your charcoal and that kind of thing, carbon-14 is radioactive. And it breaks down, decays, with a half-life of about 5,000 years. In other words, if you took a bunch of carbon-14 atoms, after 5,000 years, you would have half as many atoms as when you started. And if you waited another 5,000 years, you'd have half again. And this means you can draw a graph, and you know on the basis of how many atoms of carbon-14 there are, how long that substance must have been in existence. So if you take things which are taking carbon out of the environment, so a tree or a plant is bringing in carbon dioxide in photosynthesis and turning it into sugars and chemicals inside the plant. So all the time the plant is growing and alive, it is bringing carbon dioxide in from the atmosphere, some of which will have carbon-14, this radioactive form of carbon in it. When the plant then dies, it stops picking up carbon-14 from the atmosphere and therefore the amount of radiation in it of carbon-14 must start to go down and what the discovery of carbon-14 enabled is when we dig something up out of the ground we can look at how much carbon-14 is in there because you can measure that there are various clever chemical devices that can tell you how much of that particular form of carbon is there and you know based on how much carbon-14 is there relative to the amount of the environment when the materials were last in contact with the atmosphere, effectively. In other words, when something that was in there, a plant or whatever it was, was last bringing in new radiation in the form of carbon-14 into itself. And you can read off from that graph how old that must be. Mm -hmm. And this is useful back to about 60,000 years or so, because once you get to about 50 or 60,000 years, the amount of carbon-14 has become very, very low. So if you imagine that graph, it's going to become really, really shallow. So it becomes very much more difficult to do this with any real accuracy beyond about 50 or 60,000 years. So it's very good, therefore, for fairly recent times. But if you want to go back further, you have to use other techniques. All right, let's go to, um, is it Mary in Paul? Hi. Hi, good morning. Mm. My question is, uh, intelligence is, is um, partly genetic, partly environmental, etc., etc. But I've been told that the, uh, your intelligence quotient, the inherited part, the genetic part, comes mainly from your mitochondrial DNA. I wonder if there's any truth to this. 
Hello, Mary. I haven't heard that. And if you have a, a reference, you could send me where you read that. We could take a look for you to see if we can find anything out about that. Um, I, as far as I know, uh, the intelligence um, that you're referring to that's genetic, I think about 50% of intelligence is said to be genetic and about 50% is said to be down to the environment in which you grow. So in other words, the interaction of your genes with your upbringing. The mitochondrial genes might play a role because mitochondria are really important in providing energy for our cells and the, and the nervous system is one of the most energy-dependent organs in the body. The brain consumes about 20% of all of the energy the body uses at any instant, so it's really metabolically hungry. So if you have healthy mitochondria that are capable of pumping out lots of energy, I could see why that might help to lend itself to intelligence. But I think there's also a lot more to it than that in terms of how the brain puts itself together, the structures of the cells we have in the brain, not just the nerve cells mm -hmm. but the glial cells too, which are the supporting cells in the nervous system. So I'd be surprised if we could pin it just on the mitochondria, but they almost certainly do play a very important role, and the evidence for that is that there are a class of disorders called mitochondrial enzyme defects, which are an inherited disorder, and they often have consequences for intelligence and the function of the nervous system in the long term. So that certainly would fit up to a point with what you're saying. Thank you, Mary. And Francois in Durbanville. Mohammed, I'm coming to you next. Hi there, Francois. Hi there, Chris. Um just a question. I've noticed uh, there's been quite a bit of uh, banner towing with uh, little aircraft in the Cape Town area, and, and I've noticed when the aircraft turns uh, or banks, then the banner banks as well, especially in a, in quite a sharp turn. How, how is that possible? It's just Why connected does the with a piece of rope. Okay. Um, I would have to think about this i would guess that the reason is that the banner is not towed on a single tail line uh, in order to keep the banner level so you can read it it would have to be on at least two lines coming off the tail of the airplane and if the airplane banks then the lines are going to turn they're not going to be vertically above one another anymore one's going to be off to the side and this is going to apply a torque to the banner so it's going to twist the banner and so the banner's attitude is going to try to turn there may also be some factors to do with the fact that the air coming off the back of the airplane is going to have a different velocity because the airplane has flown through that air and maybe disturbed it a bit but i think it's more to do with the fact that the the cables pulling the banner the top one is going to shift round to the side a bit when the aircraft banks thank you francois mohammed in norwood Hello, thanks. I think this is the most, uh, the, the, the best program on radio. Thank you. I just want to know from uh, the naked scientists, I think the most uh, fascinating study is human embryology. And uh, in the beginning stage, uh, it resembles a leash-like structure and then it, it, it turns into a chewed-like substance with uh, differentiated parts and undifferentiated parts, or we can call them so much. So Professor Keith Moore has depicted this and my question is that how does this lump of flesh or chewed-like substance then turn into a solid structure with bones and, you know, uh, with sensors? Mm -hmm. And what do the differentiated parts and undifferentiated parts resem resemble? Because I'm trying to reconcile this because he said in his second edition of the, of the Developing Human that the Quran statements of the, the, uh, uh, depicting the different phases of, of human embryology is the most accurate that can be found in science. The Quran clearly mentions that it resembles a chewed-like substance with differentiated parts and undifferentiated parts. 
So to know what is this and how do they have the sense of the human sense of then develop from this chewed-like substance? Hello, Mohammed. And a lovely question. And while we're talking about development and things, Trevor phoned in last week with this question about the fold in the ear of his cat. Yes. Which was also present in some dogs, but not in his cows and his horses. Trevor, I've been on to a whole army of vets for you, including the professor of veterinary science at Cambridge University. They have recorded an answer for you. And on next week's programme, I don't, I unfortunately haven't got the audio ready for today, but I will bring that in. Oh, and yes. I will play you their answers. Um, I've got several vets onto this. Some of the best veterinary oh, thanks, brains in the world. Chris. Thank so uh, you. we'll come back to that. So that's that's a bit of embryology as well. Um, in the meantime, Mohammed's question: How does effectively a body develop? Well, it starts off as a single cell, an egg. The egg gets fertilised and starts to grow into a ball of cells, which divide. So each time they divide, you get one cell goes to two, two become four, four become eight, and so on, until you've got this big ball, and then the ball involutes it it's it's a bit like you pushing your hand into the side of a soft football so you create a sort of lump of a fist in the middle of the football so you've got a ball around the outside and a ball of cells inside and then the ball of cells inside form a flat plate of cells and that's going to be your developing embryo and the cells around the outside are going to be the sac the embryo develops in and that then turns into not just one flat plate of cells inside the ball, but two flat plates of cells. And then the left-hand edges and the right-hand edges of that flat plate roll up to form a tube. And then the one end of that tube knows it's going to be the head and the other end knows it's going to be the tail. And different genes are expressed along the length of that tube and they pattern or tell different segments along that tube you are the head end and you're going to be the head and face you are the neck you are the shoulders you are the top of the chest you are the top of the abdomen and so on and so there's a different genetic program running at different lengths along that tube and out of there then spawn all the other bits like the limbs or the organ systems so it's a very carefully and cleverly orchestrated genetic sequence that's turned on at different points along that what's called the neuraxis or the uh, ap axis which patterns the embryo to develop and different bits are told to turn into what they turn into based on the genes which are being expressed in that developing tissue thank you very much mohammed very fascinating indeed chris we look forward to the answer to kevin's question next week and thank you very much for the effort and uh, we look forward to that have a lovely weekend I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to seeing everybody soon as well because of course it's about uh, a couple of weeks. Yes. So we'll be out uh, with you all. And yeah, we're and we're going to have a live from seven oh two, of course. Oh, I look forward to that, and we'll invite our listeners to come and ask you their questions live on the radio. Thanks, Chris. Bye bye. See you soon, Rudy. Bye-bye, Bye. everyone. And that's happening the Thursday before Easter. So I think that's the 28th, right? Before you all go off, the Naked Scientist will be downstairs and uh, you can all come and be part of our live audience. Exciting. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.